Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And here it is. This show is taking place on the 6th of January. And Colonel, this uh, I have a sense that in some ways this may be one of those historic days that uh, years from now, kids studying U.S. history are going to be hearing about January 6th of 2021. There's a lot going on. Where would you like to begin? There certainly is. And again, what we're seeing in this whole period of time that we've been talking since November, we have been seeing the constitutional implications being played out in day-to-day life right before us as we see what's transpiring in this still highly disputed election. And perhaps we should begin by looking at January 3rd. Now, according to the the 20th Amendment, the new Congress takes office on January 3rd. And so they took office on January 3rd at noon. It also provides that terms of previous congressmen all expire at that same time. Interesting, here's an implication of this, that we have a runoff election in Georgia. As it looks right now, the Warnock has defeated Kelly Leffler for one of the two slots. The other, between Ossoff and Purdue, is still not called. And a lot of that is going to depend on what votes are still coming in. But at any rate, here's what we can say for sure, is that as of noon on Sunday, Senator Purdue's term ended, and he is no longer in the Senate. He may be in the Senate again in a day or so if he's successful in this race, which is still a possibility, but his term ended, and it ended because he had been elected for a regular six-year term. However, Kelly Leffler was appointed by the governor, and she was appointed after Senator Isaacson had resigned in Georgia, and so she was appointed, and so she was appointed to serve until her successor was chosen in a election. And anyway, so she continues to serve, as I see it, and will continue to serve until the election is certified. As it looks right now, it'll probably be certified for Mr. Warnock, and she will be out of the Senate. But as I understand it, as of right now, she is still a member of the Senate. So that means we might have 51 Republicans in the Senate right now, and otherwise it would be 50, as against 48 Democrats with the Georgia seats, in that case being considered vacant. But anyway, so why did they convene on a Sunday? Well, again, the 20th Amendment says that they take office at noon on the 3rd, which was the Sunday this, this time, and they will meet on that day unless they provide by law otherwise. Well, they didn't provide by law otherwise, and the president pro tem of the Senate, Senator Grassley, complained about that. He noted that in 231 years, Congress has never had to have its opening session on a Sunday, 
but they did today because the Democrats would not agree to postponing that until Monday or any later time. The reason they gave for not agreeing to a postponement also raises a constitutional issue. See, one of the powers of the president is the power to make appointments and various kinds of appointments like court appointments and for a number of other government officials, various of these appointments have to be confirmed by a majority vote of the Senate. However, if the Senate is not in session, the president has the power to make what is called a recess appointment. And that is a temporary appointment. The idea is that, especially when this nation was founded, that with communications and transportation not being what they are now, that the Senate might not be able to convene for months and very vitally important positions might lay vacant for months. And so the president was given the authority to make recess appointments. However, those recess appointments would expire after the next session of the Senate adjourns. And so if the Senate had adjourned until the 4th, then between the 3rd and the 4th, they were concerned the president could make all sorts of recess appointments. Now, if these were appointments within the executive branch, then, of course, the next president could immediately fire those persons. And But as far as court justices, they would continue to hold office until the end of the next Senate term. And the Democrats weren't willing to risk that. At least that's the reason they gave. And that's why we had a meeting of the Senate, of Congress as a whole, on the 3rd of January. And you can see now, again, it is rooted in the Constitution. Well, as we look at current events again, we move to Tuesday in what is a highly significant election. Many say the most significant senatorial election in the nation's history. And the significance of this election is that the control of the Senate is at stake with 48 Democrats. If both of these seats go Democrat, then the makeup in the Senate will be 50-50. And on a 50-50 vote, including decisions as to who to appoint to offices, to committee chairmanships and the like, that the vice president, which very likely will be Kamala Harris, the vice president, as the presiding officer of the Senate, would then make those appointments. So this was a very, very important election. And as I say, if, if Purdue is successful, then the Senate will be 51-49. If he is not, that's assuming that the call for Warnock against Leffler stands. But if not, then it could be 50-50. And we could have a Democrat majority in the Senate. All committee chairmanships would then go to Democrats. The president pro tem would be a Democrat. The majority leader would become the minority leader. Chuck Schumer would become the majority leader, and so on. And so we had a highly significant election. The full results of that election are not yet over. So now, today, according to the Constitution today, the Congress convenes jointly to 
count the electoral votes. Now, we know in advance what those electoral votes are, at least we know with pretty reasonable certainty. And if they turn out to be what we have every reason to expect them to be, then this will mean that Biden has a majority of the Electoral College, and then as of the completion of today or tomorrow's session, he will then be the president-elect. I emphasize again, he is not the president-elect yet. Now, this is current because the Senate or the Congress as a whole is convening at 1 p.m. Eastern time today, meaning that they have started their session as we are recording this particular Constitution classroom. And we'll just have to see what happens. Now, here are some possibilities. One possibility, which is not going to happen, would be that they would just simply formally open and read the count from each of the 50 states' electors and then total them and proclaim the election of a president-elect and a vice president-elect. If there were no majority, in other words, maybe if several states had abstained from voting, or if there had been a third or fourth candidate in the race, so there was no majority, then the election would go to the, first of all, the House of Representatives for the presidency, and there they would vote as to who should be president, and the vote would be by state. Each state, in other words, would cast one vote and would cast it, we presume, as the majority of the congressmen from that state wanted to be cast. If that were to be the case, then in the House of Representatives, the Republicans would have a fair chance because with the new Congress in 27 states, Republicans are a majority of the congressmen from those states. Democrats are a majority in three states, and there are, I mean, Democrats are a majority in 20 states, and there are three states where the breakup is even, like, for example, Minnesota, where it is now four Democrats and four Republicans, and how they would vote is not quite clear. It might be that they would just simply have to abstain. But... Anyway, so let's continue with this after the break. have an idea for an invention or new product? Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Then call InventHelp now. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential and explains every step of the invention process. We create professional materials representing your idea and submit it to companies who are looking for new ideas. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We also offer services including 3D modeling and animation demonstrating your idea, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to show InventHelp client ideas to additional companies. Join the thousands of people just like you who chose InventHelp to pursue their idea. We are experienced. We are working for you. We are InventHelp. Call us for free information at 1-800-460-1663. That's 1-800-460-1663. Again, 1-800-460-1663. 
Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. I'm Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis, a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Stock market have you nervous with all the massive fluctuations? With the hope for a COVID vaccine on the rise, shifting political landscape, and the election at an end, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to get what you need to stay ahead of market trends and find explosive moves before they happen. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Stop guessing. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Text MONEY to 411411 so you can protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Go to vantagepointsoftware.com for terms, conditions, and privacy policy. And welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We talk about the Constitution on this program, but we also talk about current events. And Colonel, I have never been more grateful than today to have your vast knowledge to draw upon when it comes to making sense of some of the options and some of the possible scenarios that could be playing out in Washington, D.C. as the electoral vote is being certified and as challenges to that vote may come come up as well. Let's continue where you left off as we ended the first segment. So today, the Congress, I would assume, has already started meetings. They're supposed to start at 1 p.m. Central Time. And the... Vice President of the United States presides over the Senate, and so he presides over this session. And as he's presiding over this session, then he will call for the reading of the state's electoral votes, starting in alphabetical order with Alabama, Alaska, and shouldn't be any challenges to either of those. Trump carried both of those by a substantial majority, but then we get to Arizona, and that's where the first challenge is likely to take place. And as of the last classroom that we conducted here, we had Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama saying that he would challenge these results on the floor, and there were several senators who indicated they might join him in this challenge. It has to be at least one congressman, at least one senator. Well, as of today, it's been announced that there are over 100 congressmen who are going to join in this challenge with Congressman Brooks. 
And there are about a dozen senators. And among these are Senator Hawley of Missouri, who says he was the first to announce definitely that he would raise the challenge. Senator Tuberville of Alabama and others. Senator Cruz of Texas is also mounting this challenge and a number of others. But anyway, when they raise that challenge, then, and it appears that they'll do this for each state separately in which a challenge is raised. And so this will, in all probability, start with Arizona. When that challenge is raised, then the Senate and the House will convene separately. And as they convene separately, they will debate for two hours on the challenge. A couple of the rules that they've set for a debate is that no one may speak more than once, and the speakers are to be divided, uh, those for and those against the challenge. Apparently there's some dispute right now as to how that's going to be interpreted. Some say it's going to be divided Republicans versus Democrats, and that some of the Republicans' time will be given to Republicans who oppose the challenge. And there's been some objection to that. That doesn't sound like the way the law is supposed to work. But anyway, after that two hours of debate, then each House of Congress will vote on the challenge. And if they accept the challenge, then those electoral votes from that state will be thrown out. And perhaps a substitute set of electors put in their place. And there was a group of citizens who had a mass meeting in Arizona and chose electors of their own, and very likely that will be presented as an alternate slate. The likelihood that a majority of both houses would reject this or would accept the challenge and reject what the governor has certified is quite small, actually, but I won't say it is impossible. Now, the question then arises, how are they going to vote? In, in the Senate, it's pretty clear. It'll, each individual senator will have one vote. In the House, the question is, will they vote as states or will they vote as individual congressmen? Now, there are good arguments to be made on both sides. Since this is a matter of the election of a president, the indications you might get from, the, from Article 2, from the 12th Amendment and so on, is that they vote a state. But there's another argument to be made that that provision that they voted state only kicks in if the electoral votes have been counted and there's no majority. Before that, that provision doesn't kick in. And so which is going to be the case, we really don't know. That's where there's another option that's being proposed here. And President Trump has been talking about this and whether Vice President Pence is interested in doing this or not, we don't know yet. Andy Schlafly of Phyllis Schlafly's Eagles has written a editorial proposing this challenge, but some are calling this the Pence card. What they mean by this, by the way, I guess if you play cards, I guess calling it the Trump card, that would be a different matter. But anyway, that. Vice President Pence could simply, as the presiding officer announced, that he is refusing to accept the votes from Arizona and several of these other states because these votes were not validly selected by the states. And whether as presiding officer, he has the power to do that, and if he tries to do it, whether he has the 
capability of actually enforcing that is open to a great deal of question. If he were to do that, it could lead to Supreme Court ruling. It could have a lot of other effects. We don't know. But I have some doubts that he'll do that, but I won't rule out that possibility. You have to consider the practical implications, what kind of unrest it would create, what kind of opposition there would be on the floor if he did that, all kinds of things you'd have to consider. But here's a concern that we might have is that once they go into those separate sessions, the Speaker of the House, Pelosi, will simply announce we are voting as individual Congress. If they do that, then since the Democrats have a slight majority, then they'd probably all stick together. They would in all probability, reject the challenge. If they vote as states, it could go that they would accept the challenge. But anyway, so very likely, she'll just simply announce that we are going to vote as individual congressmen rather than as states. Now, here is something that I have suggested that the vice president could do, and this is not really the trump card of simply announcing we won't accept the votes, but as the challenge is raised, as the vice president announces we are now going into separate sessions to deliberate on these challenges, he could simply make a ruling as chairman of that session that the Senate is going to vote as individual senators and the House is going to vote by states. He could make that ruling. Now, whether the when the House convenes, whether Speaker Pelosi just says, I'm disregarding that and that's not the way we're voting, I don't know. It, but th those are a few possibilities. Now, let's say they, regardless of what they do with that challenge, then they will go on, they'll read the states alphabetically and their votes will be counted and announced. And there are several other states where challenges may be raised. And among these are Georgia, certainly, Pennsylvania, certainly. Michigan is a possibility. We don't know at this point whether any senator is going to challenge Michigan, but they might, and they may be waiting to see how the other challenges go. Another is Wisconsin, and there is a possibility of Nevada. Anyway, if there is a two-hour debate on each of these, then we could very well be going into the evening and very possibly they would adjourn for the evening and reconvene in the morning. Now, one of the great significances of all of this, maybe it may get some constitutional precedents set, but also it may be an opportunity for the Republicans to get on the floor the evidence of the fraud, the illegality, the, the irregularities that have been taking place in a way that it will finally be brought to the attention of the public. And let me explain that a little more as we get into our next session. Okay, on that note, we will take a very quick time out. We will be back in just a few moments. This is Constitution Classroom. Stay with us. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Colonel, I appreciate you laying out uh, the different processes and procedures underway. It's uh, it's an interesting time. As as we are recording this program, of course, there's also a huge rally taking place in Washington, D.C. And I'm sad to say that uh, a lot of the people who are there um, supporting Trump and protesting the uh, the um, so far the outcome of the election have actually begun to try to push their way into the U.S. Capitol. So there are some clashes with police taking place. I don't see that as necessarily a positive development, but... Um, I am very interested in hearing more about uh, some of the procedural things that may be going on within the Capitol. I would agree with you completely there that I think that is a very undesirable, very dangerous course of action and does seem to be happening here right now with a few, probably not the vast majority of those who have come to this rally. The purpose of the rally, I think, is so that it will be clear that there is widespread popular support for President Trump. And there's a concept that we call popular sovereignty, that government ultimately is of the people. Under God, the people rule. And that if something is done here during this session to refuse to accept certain electors or to accept challenges to these electors, this will not simply be a group of people in a closed chamber here that are doing this. Rather, it will establish that there is widespread support from the people who believe that their election has been stolen. That's the purpose of the rally, as I understand it. And anyway, hopefully it will have that effect, and I agree with you completely. I hope that they will not try to do anything lawless or forcible like this. That will simply have negative repercussions. Anyway, so... Senator Cruz of Texas has announced that as part of the way he intends to raise his challenge is he is going to ask for a 10-day emergency period where there would be a 10-day commission established to investigate electoral fraud. I like what Mike Huckabee, the former governor of Arkansas and a presidential candidate, had to say about this when he said that the Democrats should be the main ones in favor of this. Because if, in fact, there's been no fraud, if, in fact, they have been clean in this election, then they would welcome a commission to investigate this and bring it before the public. And I think, really, this whole thing has been very much distorted by the media. That, for example, a couple of days ago, an official in the Secretary of State's office in Georgia made a refutation of President Trump's claims of fraud and illegality in the election and so on. But to read the way the media reported it, that this election official refuted Trump's baseless claims. This supposedly is objective reporting. Well, if you start in your reporting that it is accepted fact that his claims are baseless, then obviously by trying to pursue those claims, he is simply being obstinate, he's being a sore loser, he is possibly wanting to resort to force to stay in power. Likewise, several days ago, there was released a transcript, an audio of a call between President Trump and Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, in which President Trump supposedly is pressuring him to come up with 11,000 additional votes to give the Georgia election to President Trump. 
Well, I have read the full transcript of the conversation, and it doesn't come across that way at all. What President Trump is saying is, we have this evidence of fraud, and he cites evidence over and over again. And I'll be fair and say that Secretary Raffensperger disputes this. He says that, no, we, we investigated that. We don't think that's the case on a number of these. But point of the matter is, if we start with the assumption that there is no basis to these claims, then obviously our conclusion is going to be that he is just trying to pressure his way into getting a victory out of an election that he really lost. But if he really believes that there is substantial evidence of fraud that could have affected the outcome of the election, he has a duty to pursue it. And in fact, challenges in the vote in the Electoral College, like we've just talked about, have been made numerous times. Senator Boxer of California, and a congressman as well, raised a challenge to the Bush election several years ago. Some of them refused to agree and objected to the certification of Ohio's votes. I believe that was four years ago when Ohio voted for, for Trump. And so they have regularly raised challenges of this nature. The difference is, in this case, I think the Republicans have far more factual basis. And what I'm hoping that will come out of these debates, which I trust will be televised, and I urge our listeners to watch them, that what will come out of these debates will be the evidence that they have acted in an unconstitutional manner, they've acted in a legal manner, they've acted in a fraudulent manner, and they've acted in a manner that is erroneous, and that the practical result of this is that an election that, if procedures had been followed properly, would have gone to Trump in these key states, did not. If the evidence comes out before the public through these debates, at least something will have been accomplished. I know what Senator Cruz was hoping to do as well was to have the Senate conduct these investigations, which, if Republicans hold control of the Senate, they could do and they may do. If Democrats take control of the Senate, then it is likely that'll be suppressed and we'll just simply be told over and over again that these claims are fraudulent and, or these are baseless and Trump is just simply making unwarranted claims to hold on to power. That's what we'll be told and people are told that lie over and over enough. That's what they're going to come to believe is established fact. Anyway, so... I think that summarizes where we are right now. And Brian, I don't know, are there things that are not yet clear? Do you have some questions about it? No, I, I appreciate the way you've laid this out, though. Um, one of the things that I find really frustrating is the, the tendency on the part of some people, and I, I assume they're operating from, you know, a good motive when they do this to say, look, I've not seen any evidence, and so therefore there really can be nothing. That, how many uh, lawsuits have been, you know, uh, dismissed by the courts? But they act as if those lawsuits were actually heard and the evidence examined. And to my understanding, uh, no, they weren't. I don't think there's been a fair hearing, and, and I'm perfectly willing to accept whatever a fair hearing might produce. But in, in my mind, there has been no fair hearing. So I, I think it's kind of flippant to, to pretend that, well, you know, there was no evidence and there never was. And, you know, 60 times the courts have said this. No, I just think the courts dismissed a lot of lawsuits. And, and I, any comment you could have to that effect, did they actually adjudicate any of this or was it simply dismissing them? Brian, you have made an excellent point. 
And you are correct. In the vast, vast majority of these lawsuits, they have decided them on procedural issues, said that the parties didn't have standing, said the court doesn't have jurisdiction, said that it's not yet ripe, said that it's already over with and so it's too late, all these different things. But there is one case in Pennsylvania where the trial judge did look at the issue on the merits. And in that case, the trial judge ruled that the advance voting that had taken place in Pennsylvania was contrary to statute and contrary to the Pennsylvania Constitution. And that judge therefore directed that those advance votes could not be counted. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court did not dispute any of those findings. Rather, they simply, in a disputed decision where there was a dissent, they simply said that this was raised too late and therefore it is barred by the doctrine of latches that I believe we talked about last week. So you are correct. The vast, vast majority of these cases are not decided on the merits. They're decided on rules and technicalities. But there is at least one case that was decided on the merits, and that was decided in favor of President Trump and then overturned on a technicality. So wow. you're absolutely correct on that. Well, and as much as I want to believe the politicians and the media who assure me that there's nothing to see here, move along, move along, um, let's just say that my level of trust with them right now is pretty much at an all-time low. And it's not so much about because President Trump has to be, you know, the president for a second term. It's more about I want to know that the integrity of this voting system is intact. And so far, nothing that they're saying makes me feel confident that they're telling the truth or that they've examined any evidence themselves. Well, and some polls have indicated that about 39 percent of the public do believe that this election was stolen, that there were substantial irregularities and illegalities, that about a third of the public believes that President Trump won this election. And with that perception, we have a widespread discontent and skepticism about the whole electoral process. And all of that, I think, means that we need to investigate this and fix it. And I don't think the Democrats, if they take power, are going to have any interest in doing that whatsoever. I think you're absolutely right. On that note, let's take a quick break. We will be back in just a few moments for our final segment of Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis, a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol Myers Squibb and Pfizer. 
Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. Hi, I'm Wade Alaroot. Recently, John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health were guests on my show, sharing their breakthrough science of intercellular hydration. The results? People lose fat fast while still being able to eat many of the foods they love. You can too. Plus, supercharge your energy, boost your immune system, and dramatically increase your brain function. You'll look and feel years younger. It's all simple and natural without painful exercise. How do I know? Because I'm about a third of the way through my 88 days on the program, and I've already lost 25 pounds of fat. I'm now getting hydrated at the cellular level. But don't just take my word for it. Go to EnergizedHealth.com and check out hundreds of amazing testimonials. Right now, for the first time ever, Energized Health is offering a buy one, get one free special. Take advantage of this life-changing opportunity for you and someone you love. Buy one, get one free. Call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. Or go to EnergizedHealth.com. Two for one. That's EnergizedHealth.com. We all have health goals, but let's face it, you are living in some fantasy world if you think you are suddenly about to start eating better. In fact, have you thought of this? How many different servings of fruit have you eaten today? How many servings of vegetables? And sorry, Dad, French fries and ketchup don't count. The experts recommend eating over 10 servings of fruits and vegetables each day. That's where Balance of Nature comes in. With three fruit and three veggie capsules, Balance of Nature gives you all your daily recommended servings and contains 31 different fruits and vegetables. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Change your life now by calling 800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. Or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code USA. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, let's take a little bit of time to talk about the Constitution. We're to our final segment and we have been making our way through Article 1, Section 8. Uh, where do we begin today? Article 1, Section 8, again, deals with Congress, and Section 8 particularly deals with the powers that we, the people through our Constitution, have delegated to Congress. And we've dealt with the Commerce Clause, with a number of other clauses, but now we're going to get into several clauses of the Constitution that will probably take us a couple of weeks, but several clauses of the Constitution that deal with Congress's power over foreign affairs. And the reason why these are unique is that in the area of foreign affairs, this is an area where the power is shared between the president and the Congress. You know, we've seen before that in areas like commerce and so on, the power is shared between the Congress and the states or the federal government and the states. But obviously in international relations, there we have to be speaking as one nation. And so the powers in international relations are almost entirely powers that 
belong to the federal government, and we understand why. In fact, I believe it was Jefferson who made the observation once that in domestic affairs, we are 13 nations. In foreign affairs, we are one nation, which was a very good statement of how the constitutional power should be perceived. In domestic relations, they should be perceived very narrowly, that the federal government has very limited authority and almost all authority rests with states. In foreign affairs, there, the presumption is that the power is going to be broader, and we presume that the powers of Congress and the power of the president is going to be interpreted quite broadly. So the first thing we see as far as the powers that are delegated to Congress are the Congress shall have power to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations. The power to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, what jurisdiction do we have over a crime that might take place on a vessel somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? Well, that's a good question. But first of all, clearly we have authority to punish crimes that are committed if they're within our territorial waters or on our rivers. But what about out on the high seas? The way this has generally been understood is that we have the power to punish any offense that is committed on an American vessel on the high seas, and we have the power to, to punish an offense that is committed on an American vessel even if it is in the waters of a, another jurisdiction, like, for example, England. We have the power to punish offenses that are committed against American citizens when they are committed on the high seas, even if they're on another vessel, a vessel owned by England, let's say. But we do not have the power to punish offenses committed American citizens on vessels that are located within the territorial waters of another country. Anyway, that's been a little bit difficult to understand there, and defining and punishing piracies, defining what is piracy, for example, and by we think of pirates, and there's always been a little romance attached to the idea of pirates. We think of them as evil, but kind of an attractive form of evil in a way, but many times piracy was a matter of international relations between nations. In fact, England might give somebody like Sir Francis Drake a special commission giving him authority to seize Spanish vessels. And so he was committing piracy in the eyes of Spain, but was committing an act on behalf of service to the English crown. In fact, there was actually a war somewhere back in, I believe it's the 16, 1700s, that is called the War of Jenkins' Ear. Brian, have you ever heard of the War of Jenkins' Ear? Nope, that's a new one for me. Well, this was back when there were really hostile relations between England and Spain. And anyway, Jenkins was a sea captain who had been commissioned by the king or queen to attack Spanish vessels that were operating illegally in the views of the King of England. And anyway, he was seized by the Spanish authorities. The Spanish authorities cut off his ear, handed him his bloody ear, 
and told him, take that and show it to the king and tell him what's going to happen to other of your pirates if you continue to do this. Well, Jenkins, Captain Jenkins, took his severed ear and showed it before the parliament. The parliament immediately declared war on Spain, and so that is referred to as the War of Jenkins' Ear, although it was really part of a much broader war between England and, and Spain. But then another thing we see here is the power to define and punish offenses against the law of nations. Now, for a long time, we have recognized that there is such a thing as international law, and that international law is really based on a higher law, the law of God. And you can go back to international law and see something of international law in the writings of the Greeks and the Romans and so on. But you, some of the Spanish scholars like Father Suarez and Father Vittoria and their treatises on international law developed the concept of international law a great deal. But they see international law as something that is only possible between Christian nations because only Christian nations can be governed by this higher law, the law of God. And after all, France can't be governed by the laws of England, and England can't be governed by the laws of France. So if we're going to have international law, it has to be based on some kind of higher law, the law of God, and only Christians can recognize the law of God. And then along comes a Dutch theologian and diplomat, Hugo Grotius, or de Groot, as the Dutch would have called him. He was a theologian, as well as being a prime minister and had a number of capacities, and he served the government of the Netherlands and occasionally was at odds with the government of Netherlands and one time had to flee the country but returned. But Hugo Grotius wrote one of the most classic works in all history on the subject. It was titled The Law of Nations, and it's an excellent work, very, very detailed. But Grotius was a very strong Christian man, and one of his writings was titled the, On the Truth of the Christian Religion, in which he presents a very strong defense of Christianity, arguments against atheism, and so on. But it's, this has sometimes been called the first Protestant work on Christian apologetics which makes it especially interesting to me since I teach apologetics. But anyway, Grotius says that the law of nations can apply to non-Christian nations as well, and he takes the passages, for example, in Psalm 19 that talk about the heavens declare the glory of God, and so there is a natural law that is perceived by everyone, and then on into Romans 1 and 2, where we speak about the Gentiles who have not have not the law do the things contained in the law because they have the law written on their hearts. In other words, they have natural law. And because of this, he says natural law can be applied to Christian nations and non-Christian nations alike. And this makes an interesting basis for entering into treaties and other kinds of agreements between Christian and non-Christian nations, which was thought by some prior to that to have been impossible. Anyway, so the concept then of the law of nations or international law has been around for a long time, but the problem is 
how do you define what it is? And anyway, the Constitution's answer to that question is, as far as America is concerned, Congress will define the law of nations for how it applies to us and to others and transactions that are affecting us. Not only will we define it, but we will also provide the kind of penalties that can be imposed for the violations of international law. And that being the case, I'm of the opinion that entering into matters such as United Nations, establishing the courts like the Hague Court and other such things like this, I question whether this is consistent with the Constitution of the United States. Maybe there's some power to delegate this to another body, but I would say that ultimately the power to define what the law of nations is and to punish the law of nations rests with Congress, not with the United Nations.